0: My name is Derek. I am the community groups pastor here. If you're new with us or joining us online for the first time, we are glad you are here. If you have a Bible and want to join me in Psalm 96, that's the passage we're going to be looking at today. It's a funny thing to prepare a sermon and weeks ago kind of decided this is the passage that I'm going to preach and then God in his sovereignty brings some world events around that speak in some ways to exactly what we're going to be looking at today. The the worship of God and the worship of God of all peoples. There's a line from a book that I enjoy called that says missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Uh, And the author of the book, uh, Pastor John Piper, he argues that the goal of all of creation is to worship the Lord. But that's not happening. All people aren't doing that. And so then we have to go with the gospel But the reason we do that is because of how great and how glorious our God is. Here's a little bit more of what uh, Piper says in his book. He says this, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. The worship of God is the ultimate goal of all things. And in the middle of moments in our world where everything seems to begin, at least in other places of the world, to begin to fall apart, we can be reminded that our God is sovereign and worthy of our worship and that we do get to gather together and to set our minds on him. And that's the goal of Psalm 96 to remind us of who God is. And so here's what Psalm 96 says. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all God's. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is a call to worship the one and only God. It was composed uh, around the time of David and the people of Israel bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Uh, we don't have uh, attested an author or who it is, but we know from 1 Chronicles 16 that when the, the Israelites take Jerusalem, they capture the city, they bring the ark into the city, and they're going to set it up in the tabernacle. And this song, this psalm for us is recorded in um, 1 Chronicles 16 as the song that was sang as they brought in the ark of the covenant. And it's celebrating their worship of God, but also God's sovereignty over all things. That the true king who has led his people into the land is now coming to take his place on the throne. And it directs our hearts to worshiping that king, that sovereign God. And I think as we look at this song, there are three aspects of worship that we see that come out, that we are called to to have a part in as we worship our God. we see that we should proclaim his salvation, ascribe him glory, and anticipate his return. Those are the kind of the three movements of this psalm, and that's the way we're going to break it up today. So proclaim his salvation, ascribe him glory, and anticipate his return. And I tried really hard to figure out an A for the word proclaim just to make it all alliterate for everybody, but uh, announce didn't sound like enough of a word, and So I'm just not that great at alliteration. I apologize today, but hopefully you can still remember it. Uh, We're going to start with proclaim his salvation. That's where David immediately takes us or the people who composed the psalm. I I believe it was David. Uh, But the first aspect he shows us is that our worship should revolve around the saving works of God. The first six verses of the psalm focus on God's saving works and their need for that to be proclaimed. And he begins by calling us when it comes to the saving works of God or proclaiming his salvation. Actually, he starts with us singing it. We should sing about the salvation of God. There's something about music that draws out our emotions more than anything else. There's a reason that we begin our worship services not just with someone standing up here talking to you, but with song because it stirs up our emotions. It brings just something different out of us than regular speaking does. It calls us to remember each and every time the saving works of God, what he's done for us. And I love the way David says it. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. That doesn't mean that every time we gather together, we should compose specific new music. Instead, the idea carries what uh, lamentation tells us when it says that the mercies of the Lord are new every single morning. So every day there are actual new things to sing about because there are new mercies. There are a couple of hundred of us in the room today, and every single one of us woke up today feeling a very specific way. And some of you woke up tired and worn down after a really long week. Others of you feel anxious and unsettled because of circumstances that are going on in your life, in the world. Some of you just feel stressed out because it feels like so much has been piled on you and you can't ever get out from under it. Some woke up this morning questioning whether or not God exists or that he even loves you. And all of us, no matter how we woke up, no matter how we come in here, we need to be reminded that God has mercy for you. And God's mercies, they're not generic. God doesn't have a one-size-fits-all mercy. In fact, God has new mercies that that fit exactly what you need to endure. And so today, God has mercy for some of you to settle your anxiety God has mercy for those of you who feel stressed out and overwhelmed by the world. He has mercy specifically to help you through your weariness. He has a mercy that speaks into the fact that you're questioning his love, and he's there to say, oh, no, I do love you. I've proven my love through Christ and what he has done. God has specific mercies to meet your specific need on this specific day. And that's worth singing about. That's worth lifting our voice and letting our emotions be stirred to worship our God as we proclaim his salvation. But we don't just sing it. Verses two and three call us to actually speak about it as well. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples we're called to speak it. And I think we do that in two different ways. One, we speak it to other believers. When you gather with other believers, maybe it's your family members that you gather with, it's good to rehearse the mercy and the grace of God that he pours out into our life day in and day out. It's good as you gather with your community group or other believers here to, to, yes, to voice the suffering, the pain and the difficulty that we feel, but also to celebrate and to speak of the way that God's grace and his mercy pulls us through. The way that God in his grace gives us other believers to rally around us and to help us endure these things. We should speak of the mercy and the grace of God, his saving ongoing work in our life with other believers, with one another. There's also a call though to speak it to people who do not know Jesus. Part of our worship is proclaiming him to those who aren't yet his followers. I was reading a book recently and he was briefly talking about evangelism and then the way he described evangelism just kind of fit to me. I thought it was really helpful. He talked about it um, in two ways. One is like a tube of toothpaste. If you think about a tube of toothpaste, as you get to the end of the tube of toothpaste, what do you do? You start from the bottom and you kind of start to squeeze and you push as best you can to get all the toothpaste up to the top. And then you start rolling the toothpaste tube up. Why? So that you can just do whatever you need to do to put the pressure on it, to get that last bit of toothpaste out of the tube. And for some of us, that's what evangelism feels like. We're just, okay, all the pressure's there. Let's squeeze the bit of evangelism out so that we can move on to something else. But he contrasted that with what we hope and what I think the psalm is calling us to. It's more like popping open a champagne bottle. Right? When you pop the cork on the champagne bottle, stuff just kind of always spills out. You can be as careful as you want, but if you buy a really good champagne, you pop that thing open, a little bit's going to spill out. It's just going to overflow. It's the nature of what it does. And what the psalm is calling us to do is to reflect, to sing, to speak about what God has done for us. To call to mind the fact that he has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has taken us from wherever we were and brought us into the family of God and let the joy of that, the emotion of that so well up in us that it just overflows and is going to come out in some way. And so my question for you to ponder this morning is simply this, who do you need to speak about Jesus with? Who has God placed in your life that you need to speak of the glory of what Christ has done in your life? It's a it's one of the goals of our worship of him. It's that, that's the goal of our worship of him individually as we live our lives. It's also the goal of us as a church corporately to see the gospel going forward in our city and to the ends of the earth. It's why we partner with people who are working in Romania to plant churches. It's why we work with missionary partners in Ukraine and in India because we want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. It's why we're so strategic in our LH360 family campaign. That we're giving monies to see refugees resettled here in the city so that we can minister to them and speak the gospel to them. It's why we as a church planting team are supporting an Afghan church plant and a Ukrainian church plant here in our city so that people can come who God has brought. This, This psalm has a worldwide focus. Over and over, the psalm calls the nations, all the peoples, to worship God. And so our call is to go to the nations Or God, in His grace, He just brought the nations to us. If you look around our city, you're going to see people from all over the globe are coming to this city. God is bringing them here, and we want to see them reached with the good news of Christ. And the reason we want to do that is because of who God is. The psalm calls people to proclaim His salvation, to sing it, to speak it, and then The psalmist is very kind. He gives you the reason why in verses four through six. The reason we proclaim his salvation in our worship is because God is great and glorious. He is great and glorious. Verse four says, the Lord is great. He is to be feared above all gods. Verse five says, in fact, all the other gods out there, they are worthless idols. If you can read the original Hebrew, there's actually a play on words there. The the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, and the Hebrew word that he uses for idols is Elilim. He's using a play on words, and actually that word Elilim, it means nothings. He's literally saying, compared to God, these so-called idols, they are nothings. They're parody gods. Jesus, or God, made all that there is. There's nothing that you can see in all of creation that he didn't create. When we begin to think about the logic of idols, their worship of created things, and and we know, we've heard it said, we don't have statues, but there are plenty of things in creation that we worship, or we give our affections and our loves to, and all of those things. It's a weird concept that there is something greater that created all of those things, yet we give our love and our affections, not to the greater thing, but to the lesser thing. And and the psalm is calling us to, no, 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 set your minds. He is the greatest thing. He is glorious. Splendor and majesty, verse 6 says, are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. These are talking about divine attributes of who God is. What the psalm is telling us is you have seen beautiful things before. You have seen splendid things before. You've seen acts of strength you've beheld majesty. And all of those things that you have seen that you can think about in your mind that are those, they are there because God allows them to have that. He is the source. He doesn't do something to be splendid. He is splendid. He doesn't do something to be majestic. He is in himself those things. He is strength. He is beautiful. He is more glorious than we can fathom, and so we proclaim. And and he works in our lives. He brings his salvation. He pours his mercy into us. And so we worship him. And as we worship him, as we proclaim his salvation, both in song and in speech, what begins to happen is the Spirit works to fight back against the idols of our heart. The Spirit works to take those things that, that we think are great and glorious... And when we set our mind, and when we remember, and we sing, and we have our emotions stirred for the work of God in our life, he takes those things off those thrones, and he moves them down, and he replaces himself where he's supposed to be. This is what worship does. It begins to rip down the idols of our heart, and so we proclaim his salvation in worship, but we also see that we ascribe him glory. In verses seven through nine, three different times, uh, the psalmist calls the people to ascribe to the Lord. Uh, to, To attribute, this ascribe means to attribute or regard a quality as belonging to a particular person. So he's calling us to attribute to the Lord glory, giving God the glory that belongs to him. And he calls all the families. Of the peoples. He's calling all of the world to do this. What the psalmist is calling us to in our worship is what David pictures in or not David, Habakkuk pictures in in his prophecy in Habakkuk 2, I think it's verse 14. He says this, "The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea." That all of the people will acknowledge that the, the glory of God, it covers The the earth as the waters cover the sea. In case you haven't been to the ocean in a while, let me tell you how much of it's covered in water. All of it. There's not a a speck of ocean that doesn't have water in it. That's Habakkuk's point. That there is a day that is coming that all of the world is going to see the glory of God. They're going to acknowledge it. They're going to ascribe the Lord, the glory to his name. And that's what the call is. That's what we are doing in our worship. And ultimately, what this call is, is it's a call for us to do exactly what we were designed to do. We were created by God to give him glory. We as people, we love to give glory to things. It's been fascinating to me over the last several weeks to watch uh, professional football, if you're an NFL fan. And what's been fascinating about it is a lot of eyes have been on professional football because for the last two weeks, Taylor Swift has gone to Kansas City Chiefs games because the rumor is that she is dating Travis Kelsey, the tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. And why this is such a big deal is because now... Swifties from everywhere are tuning in to watch the Kansas City Chiefs play who didn't care at all about football before. But they do now. They'll watch now because someone that they are drawn to, someone that they love, is a part of it. And her attention is there, so their attention is there. We love to give glory to things. It's why yesterday, Hundreds of thousands of people gathered in stadiums to cheer 18 to 22-year-olds. Right? It's why every Oklahoma fan went nuts at the end of the game yesterday when they finally beat Texas, which was excellent, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Because we love to give glory to things. We were created to do it. That's the call. But how do we do it? How do we ascribe God the glory that is due his name? Well, first I think we do it corporately. David calls the people or the psalmist calls the people to bring an offering and come into the courts of the Lord. For the Israelites, this would have been done as they came into the tabernacle together or into the temple together to worship their God. This is a call to gather together with the people of God and to worship him. And it says to bring an offering. This, wouldn't, this would have um, referred to the practice of bringing grain offerings in before the Lord. This isn't sacrifices of animals. This is grain offerings. This is returning to God a portion of what he has given to his people. This is one of the reasons why, not just because it's tradition, but one of the reasons that we have a time set aside for us to give of our physical resources is because it's a way of us worshiping God. It's a call that he has to us the giving of our monies, the giving of our physical resources, it breaks down the idolatry that money can have on us. When we are ready to give away and give back to God what he has so graciously given to us, it frees us from the traps that money can have on us. And so there is a call to to give of our physical resources, but but ultimately it's, it's the command to gather with the people of God on a regular and routine basis. It's a call to to love and to serve others. It isn't just about giving of our physical resources. It's about giving of our time. If we give of our time on a Sunday morning to serve our church in the kids area, in students, on the worship team, out front in greeting, in so many other ways, or even during the week, as we give of ourselves to love people, to serve them. When we give away these things, when we bring these offerings in, It's a way of our worship. It allows us to corporately worship together. But we also do it individually. We do it corporately as we gather on a weekly basis, but we do it individually in our lives. This call to ascribe him glory, it's not just a call to happen one time a week for an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday. That's the only time you're supposed to ascribe him glory. No, instead it happens daily for us. It's a daily ritual to come and to ascribe ascribe God the glory that is due His name because this is what you were created to do. And when we create this rhythm in our life of daily coming before the Lord, ascribing Him glory, we fulfill exactly what God created us to do. It's ultimately the way to joy and satisfaction in this life. I've always thought about it kind of like um, working out. I don't know if you've ever tried to work out, but if you go to the gym... All right. If you get to a machine, if you're going to use a machine to work out, you get to a machine. If you get into the machine backwards and you try to do something in that machine, even though you're in it backwards, you might derive some benefit from however you do that exercise. But if you turn around, If you get into the machine and use the machine exactly the way it was designed to be used, you are going to find the maximum benefit for your body. You were created and designed by God a very specific way. And when you use that creation and that design exactly the way that God intended it to be, you are going to find the greatest gain, the greatest joy, the greatest benefit. And we were created to give him glory. And so as we do that in our daily lives, through reading the scriptures, memorizing them, meditating on them, praying and seeking the face of God, as we do those things, you are going to find greater joy, greater satisfaction, deeper gain in this life, because that's what you were created to do. And so in our worship, we ascribe him glory. We do it as we are gathered together and we do it as we are scattered throughout our daily lives. And that's what leads us further up and further into the joy of God. And the final thing that we see is that in our worship, yes, we proclaim his salvation, we ascribe him glory, but then we ultimately anticipate his return. In the final stanza of this Psalm in verses 10 through 13, David calls attention to the sovereign God and his rule and reign over all things. Verse 10 kind of serves as a transition verse. There's this big call to to set our minds on God, who he is, his greatness, his glorious ascribe him glory. And then we kind of see the result of that in verse 10, that the nations will say the Lord reigns. They will understand who God is and they will see he spoke this world into existence. He right now upholds the universe by the word of his power. And one day he is going to return and he is going to judge and set all things right. That's ultimately why we anticipate his return. And it's an intriguing turn in verse 11 that David or the psalmist calls the creation to. He says he wants the creation to be glad, to rejoice, to roar, to exult. There's this depiction of the creation crying out that it can't contain itself anymore and it needs to do something to express its joy in who God is. And that description of creation is really different from the one that Paul gives. In Romans 8, Paul gives a description of creation that almost is completely different and stands in stark contrast to what the psalmist says here. In Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, here's what Paul writes about creation For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And that's a very different description. Paul's description is very different from what we read in this psalm. The psalm is rejoice, exult, be glad, Versus futility, subjection, bondage, groaning. And I would guess that for a lot of us, we experience creation in this world more the way that Paul describes it than the way the psalm describes it. I I, I believe, just like you, I, I would guess you're like me, right? I have seen the beauty of creation. I've gone into beautiful mountain ranges and looked out and seen the beauty of God's creation. I've stood in the the sands of the beach and seen the grandeur of the ocean. Right, We have seen this beauty that calls us to worship God in his creation. And I've experienced a lot of the brokenness and the futility of the world. I've watched as people weep because their marriages are falling apart. I've known the pain of walking through miscarriage out of pregnancy. I've seen dementia and Alzheimer's just devastate people that I love. We're watching, even right now, wars unfolding in our world. I've been to numerous funerals. I've seen racial bigotry and hatred towards other people. I know people whose lives and stories have stories of abuse and exploitation at the hands of others. I spent hours and hours in hospital rooms for cancer treatment. This is the creation subjected to futility. And most of us experience those things more in our life than we do the rejoicing. We experience the evidence of the decay and the groaning. And so it makes me wonder, why would the psalmist write of the creation rejoicing and exulting And he writes this. He tells us that the creation will rejoice and it will exult because God is coming. That there is coming a day when Christ is going to return. And when he returns, he is going to bring with him a brand new creation. We anticipate his return because a new creation is coming He is going to come. He is going to judge. He is going to set all things right. He is the one who can ultimately make all things right. But it's not just the creation out there. It's the creation in here. He's not just going to bring a new creation. He's going to bring a renewed people. It means that when Christ returns, there will be a day when relationships will no longer be broken. When Christ returns, there is going to be a time when diseases and afflictions like Alzheimer's, like cancer, heart disease, broken bones, just the general breakdown of the body, it will all cease. It will be no more. If the creation is subject to decay now, it means there will be a time when the power of Christ through his resurrection undoes all of that decay and it will not exist anymore. It means that wars are going to cease. It means that animosity is going to be gone. It means there will be no more funerals because there will be no more death. It means people won't hate any, each other anymore because of the color of their skin. People won't seek to abuse others anymore for Anymore for their own gain. When Christ returns, all the sad things are going to come untrue. I love the way that Tim Keller so eloquently put it. He said, Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. And so our worship, it culminates and it points toward the hope that we have in Christ. It anticipates his return. That today, the world may be broken. Today, we're going to experience pain, suffering, and heartache. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus has guaranteed that he will make everything right. He's going to undo it all, and it'll all be greater. Because he had the power to fix what was broken. And so, Father, would you hurry that day? We anticipate the day of your return, O God. We look forward to it. We recognize, we don't want to pass over, that there is pain, there is hardship, there is difficulty right now. There are people who are experiencing pain and hardship. There are people who have lost loved ones to war. Hundreds of people who have experienced this, God. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who right now are being persecuted because they love you. We have friends and family who are suffering from disease Mm -hmm. because of the curse of sin. There are so many things, God, that we can look at and see. Oh, yeah, the, the creation is subjected to futility. But there are glimmers. There's the beauty of your creation that we can see. There's the way your mercy pours into our lives every single day. And so, God, would you stir our hearts to see those things and may it give us hope. May we remember that because of what Christ has done there is a guarantee that what we believe isn't um, ethereal God. It is real. You came. You lived. You died. You rose again and because of that you are going to make everything right. And So let that be the fuel of our worship. Let that be the hope of our heart. And as we do that, would you be glorified so that we could find joy? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.